You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, Riddle Me That, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 81 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic case of 76-year-old Loretta Benaderet, who was gunned down in 2014. Her killer wasn't a stranger, and her death wasn't the result of random violence. Instead, Loretta died at the hands of her own son. We'll dive into Loretta's story after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Juniper Hensley, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that the sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Just a word of caution, today's episode deals with mental illness, suicide, and animal abuse, and may be especially hard for some people to listen to. Loretta Benaderet was 76 years old when she died in 2014, but it wasn't a natural death from old age or illness, and it wasn't peaceful. Loretta's life came to a violent end at the hands of someone she should have been able to trust, her son, 48-year-old David Benaderet. He killed Loretta by shooting her before turning the gun on himself and taking his own life. Digging through this case reveals a lot of trouble and turmoil and a history of erratic family life. On September 4, 2014, the Natrona County Sheriff's Office received a call There were two deceased people in a blue Nissan Altima at the Tower Hill Campground on Casper Mountain in Wyoming. A woman was in the driver's seat, and a man was in the passenger seat of the car. Both had suffered fatal bullet wounds. The man was holding a gun still pointed at the woman. Police publicly identified the pair four days later as Lorena Benaderet and her son David Benaderet. The Natrona County Sheriff's Office found a note under the passenger seat of Loretta's car, left by David. It read, My mother and I have long talked about not wanting to live in this awful world any longer. The note added that they were both tired of their financial and health problems. David believed Loretta was suffering from skin cancer, and taking her life was an act of mercy. Loretta's daughter, Kim Adams, 
doesn't believe her mother was part of the plan at all. Investigators didn't either. Based on the gunshots, authorities believe that Loretta resisted David's attack. Rather than one shot like David himself suffered, Loretta was shot in the left shoulder, the cheek, and the chin. Authorities interviewed friends and family members during their investigation, and they learned that David and Loretta may have been fighting recently, and it was soon believed that David snapped and planned to murder his mother before taking his own life. They were at the campsite because David told Loretta he wanted to take photos of wildlife for his 48th birthday. One photo that authorities recovered is of Loretta on a log waving, but not smiling. Another is of David in the same spot, smirking, with his hands in his pockets. Kim, Loretta's daughter and David's sister, hadn't seen either of them in 14 years. In 1993, David and Loretta moved to Kingsbury, Wyoming from Long Beach, California. It was there that they stayed isolated. Kim was afraid of her own brother, David, so she didn't visit. And Loretta didn't visit Kim either, claiming she feared flying. But Kim believes that David wouldn't let Loretta leave. But just a few weeks before her murder, Loretta drove to California by herself and attended a family wedding. Here, she finally met her grandchildren, who were already teenagers. Kim feared David because of his behavior toward her during her childhood. She recalls it was horrible. David would destroy Kim's toys, her dolls, and books. When they swam, he would hold her head under the water. He would also hold pillows over her face, smothering her. When faced with consequences, David would lie to their parents, and Loretta would believe him over Kim. She would sometimes make excuses for David's behavior, and has even called Kim a liar. But the troubling behavior didn't end there. David would also abuse his pets. When he was four, he put a cat into the washing machine and turned it on. Luckily, Loretta rescued the cat. By age 12, David was beating their dogs. He would even hit his own dog with a baseball bat when he was home alone with Kim. She tried to explain what the dog had gone through when their mother returned, but Loretta didn't believe her. When David was 17, he killed Kim's cat by chasing it under a bed and then jumping up and down on a bed until it broke and collapsed on top of the cat. Loretta believed it was just an accident. The year their parents divorced, Kim was 12 years old. That was the same year she saw 15-year-old David point a BB gun at their father, resulting in the SWAT team showing up. Loretta was hit in the head with the gun during the struggle, resulting in a cut so deep she needed stitches, but she refused to press charges against her son. Despite all of the warning signs pointing to David needing serious help, Loretta always stopped short of getting her son that help. Family weren't the only ones who knew about David's state of mind. People in their neighborhood often heard David yell and curse at Loretta. One person recalled hearing him say, You're a stupid woman. Another neighbor recalled David telling them that a spaceship cloaked with invisibility was just above their neighborhood. No one knew the extent of his mental illness. Kim found size 18 shoes in David's bedroom after his death, and size 12 shoes in his closet. His toes had worn down the shoes around the middle of the sole. For some reason, David believed his feet were about double their size. He thought he had giganism and Loretta even set up an appointment with a doctor to have him checked out. But still, Loretta would only acknowledge his panic attacks, and she attributed them to physical issues. She didn't believe he had any other mental health problems. David never made it to that doctor appointment, dying about a week before the visit and taking his mother with him. When police went in David and Loretta's Kingsbury home, they found crates of water bottles and hundreds of cans of food macaroni, tuna, chicken, green beans, corn, and more. The cans were stacked on the floor, packed into closets, and shoved under beds. Investigators learned that David was paranoid and suffered from delusions. He thought aliens were going to abduct him, and he also thought he was from a different planet. He believed the government was going to take over, and he believed the end of the world was near. In 2013, Loretta was told by David that the apocalypse was close. As a result, she believed that looters would come to their home and steal their resources, their canned food and supplies, 
So to protect their supplies, Loretta bought a 38 caliber handgun. Family and friends tried to warn her to keep the gun locked up and away from David. And in turn, Loretta would warn them to buy one before they were banned. She was dismissive of their concerns. But it turns out they were right to be concerned, because this is the gun David would later use to end his own life and his mother's. Kim only spoke to Loretta a few times a month on the phone. Their relationship was splintered after years of dysfunction and problems. They mostly spoke about David and the conspiracy theories he would read on the internet. Kim tried to warn Loretta that David was dangerous, but Loretta just believed David and took his side, enabling him, even getting upset when Kim would suggest that he needed mental help. David once tricked Loretta into believing there was a ghost hiding her keys and damaging their framed photographs. Loretta believed in the ghost to the point that she slept on a basement couch. One day, Loretta found her work clothes shredded, and at that point, she understood that there was no ghost and that David was gaslighting her. Before she left for that family wedding prior to her death, she asked a neighbor to hold on to an outfit, knowing David would ruin it if she didn't keep it safe from him. Sadly, due to the isolation of the state and the fewer psychiatric options, Wyoming's rate of murder-suicide is slightly higher than in other states. According to psychiatrists, most perpetrators are men who believe they are losing control in their lives. David fit this description, as Loretta had begun to date and leave David alone while she was with her boyfriend. Loretta had also recently got a job at Sam's Club because her inheritance money she survived on had run out. Following the murder-suicide, Kim donated her brother David's body to scientific research, and his skeleton was sold by Science Care. The rest of his remains were cremated. Kim didn't want the ashes, so they were buried in an unmarked grave. As for Loretta's ashes, Kim took those to the Oceanside Pier around 9 p.m. on December 27, 2014, and she and her family released the ashes into the water. Kim has forgiven her mother for believing David so many times and always discounting what she had to say. And she holds no bitterness towards her brother for what he did. Now when Kim tells her story, she does so to be a voice for those who need it the most. Victims of child abuse, domestic violence, and those suffering from the effects of untreated mental illness. What happened to Loretta at the hands of her own son is alarming and hard to accept. And it makes you wonder how many powder cake situations are like this across the United States ready to explode and destroy families. Kim joined me to discuss the sad and frightening case that cost her not one, but two family members. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, spring is just about here, and for many people, this is the time when we want to get out and get active. But for some of us, that's easier said than done, because often, things that have been weighing on us don't magically go away with the change of seasons. But the good news is, there is help, and that help is called BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, you can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from trauma, depression, and anger issues, to LBGT matters, grief, stress, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month with BetterHelp. Hi, Kim, and thanks for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your mom, Loretta's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. This is a, a case that's one of the more tragic ones that I've covered because the person that killed your mom 
wasn't a random stranger. It wasn't a serial killer. It was someone close to you. It was your, your brother, David. I can't even imagine how tough an ordeal having to deal with that's been uh, for you. Yes, it has. It has had quite an impact on my life. Then six years later, there's there's a lot to unpack here before we get to what happened. I, I just wanted to get a sense. Can can you tell us a bit about your mom and what kind of person she was? My mom um, was a person that was um, very self self absorbed. She was beautiful. She was a model. She uh, wanted to portray uh, perfection in our family. So growing up, my mother spent a lot of time focusing on herself and um, my brother. My brother was four years older than me, and he had um, a lot of medical issues. He had a lot of animosity toward my father which I don't want to really get into. But um, my mother had a relationship that with my brother that seemed very codependent. She and I were never close. I don't remember a time where we had close mother-daughter relationship. She seemed to thrive on conflict. She was a very complex person. As a mother, she was not loving toward me. She was loving in a sick way with my brother where she needed him as much as he needed her. She enabled him. She kept him home from school for four years uh, with so-called medical issues that he he basically just, he he didn't, do well with other people, even at a very young age. With enabling him also came a lot of um, deception on his part and a lot of lies. She either believed his lies or she didn't want to admit that she was dealing with a child who obviously had mental issues that escalated throughout the years. So, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like maybe in trying to address his, his issues or trying to handle him in a certain way, it seems like maybe somewhere along the way she lost track of spending time with you and doing the things with you that she, you know, she might have had your brother not have these issues. That's correct. I I believe that to be a correct statement. Um, my, my brother, when he was four days old, um, flipped, I don't know how it happened necessarily, but my mother's rendition of it is he flipped off changing table, fell straight onto his head on a hardwood floor and he almost died. And because of her guilt towards that, or because of her guilt in, um, turning away and um, just feeling like she should have been there. And then his continued medical issues. He had a lot of residual um, issues as far as his possible brain damage. Back then there were no MRIs. There were no, you know, CAT scans. There was no way of really treating him other than sticking him in a hospital for seven days and, watching and waiting. And I feel like that had an impact possibly on his mental condition. Um, and it just set my mother up to, uh, be just overly protective of him. And, and maybe she overcompensated a little bit for, for feeling like she was somehow responsible when, for him, uh, from the earliest stage of his life having the issues he had she wanted to sort of overcompensate and and protect him more that's a correct statement yes what age did you notice all of this starting i mean everybody has different relationships with their parents and and everybody's relationship is is different from other people's but 
when did you feel that there was a riff between you and your mom uh, uh, in your relationship? Um, I felt it at a very young age. Like I said, my brother's four years older than me. And at the time that I was born or even a few months before I was born, my brother was four years old and he was putting the cat in the washing machine and turning it on. I mean, he, he was exhibiting behaviors that were already very concerning. I believe I started noticing um, it was an, it was a complex relationship between us. Um, I have a lot of memories as far as trauma that go back to age three. Um, I had a hernia operation when I was three years old, 1973. And during that time, my mother had spent the night in the room with me. And I distinctly remember not wanting her to be there. I was, um, I was in a crib. And, you know, this is not a dream. This is, this is something that has stayed with me throughout the years. And just not wanting to be with her. It's like I had never really attached to her and what might be considered reactive attachment disorder nowadays. Um, I just, I never had that bond with her. When I was five and my brother was nine, that's when he started having a lot of uh, stomach issues. Um, He developed an ulcer. He was, there was a lot of stress in the home. Uh, My parents just fought all the time. So at that point, that's where I was uh, left to kind of fend for myself. And that's when I developed an independence where um, I would read all the time. I began reading at a very young age, and I just immersed myself in literature, even at age five years old. I had already... I believe, dissociated in some ways. Going back to my mother, she grew up with trauma. And trauma generally, um, you know, is generational. Her father sexually molested her. And she warned me at a very young age to not be alone with grandpa, that he would do bad things to me and molest me. So she had kind of put it on me to save myself from him. So that was a weird dynamic too. But my mother, I believe she never really learned how to be a mother. Her mother was also very standoffish, was not involved in her life other than getting her involved in modeling and, you know, the um, focusing on appearances it was all appearances and all just her beauty and um, just what that did for my maternal grandmother, what fulfilled that, you know, void in her life. And my mother was the same way. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, friction and dis- dysfunction going on uh, between you, your mom, your brother, and the household and in general. Yes. You mentioned that your, your brother had different physical ailments uh, and he had also disturbing behavior with the cat and the washer, that kind of thing. Was he ever deemed to be mentally ill or, or suffer from any kind of mental disorders? You know, they never uh, took him to any kind of um, psychologist back in back in the 60, late 60s, early 70s you really didn't take your child to be psychologically evaluated. Um, He just went to, you know, normal doctor visits. But from such a young age, there was obviously so much wrong. And it just escalated from there. I remember him being kind to me when I was young. um, But that was that was short-lived. My dad and I were very close and my dad didn't want a whole lot to do with him. And he and my mother were really close. So there was a rift right there. And um, that caused a lot of tension as well. And a lot of jealousy on his part, I think. 
um, because of my relationship with my dad. It, did it come a time when things got so bad, maybe as you got older, that you separated from the rest of the family or or went steered clear of your, your mother and your brother? Yes. That happened fairly quickly. My brother became more and more angry. Um, he started hurting our animals. He knew the impact that that had on me. He would beat the animals so I can hear them cry and the dogs. And he would torture them. He was relentless in his bullying towards me. He would try to smother me with pillows. He would sit on my shoulders when we were swimming and um, there's a pool next door. He would sit on my shoulders for I don't know how long and I felt like I was going to drown. And I, I was his target. I was his biggest target. But he was also very cruel to my mother, which being his enabler and being the only one that really cared for him and his physical ailments, uh, he would call her some very cruel names and just put her down. It was just very derogatory, very disrespectful towards her. He was very bigoted at a young age, which I don't know really where he learned um, his hatred and bigotry. He um, worshipped Hitler. He went around, you know, Heil Hitler, um, just spouting off some of the weirdest and um, such disturbing uh, rhetoric. He um, was bought a BB gun when he was eight. I'm sorry, he was nine. And he walked around saying he wanted to kill people. He wanted to, he wanted to kill. And um, I say that I was his biggest target, but there were other kids in the neighborhood. I had a best friend who he would get a hold of her. He, um, he had a snake and he would feed the um, snake a mouse and she hated watching it and he would lock her in the room and make her watch. Um, he stuffed a tennis ball in her mouth and she, she couldn't breathe. I mean, this was the type of person where you see like serial killers, Ted Bundy, you see these type of, um, these type of, um, uh, behaviors in them that should have been addressed, but never were. I was called a liar when my mom would come home and I'd say he was beating the animals. He was doing this, you know, and I was called a liar and I was sent to a psychologist so that um, I could be cured. <laughs> like I was, I was the issue in the, in the family, but the, the pinnacle, the, 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 the worst tragedy, uh, well, it's up there, but um, was when he killed my cat. My cat was my best friend. Um, I felt trapped in that house, and the only, um, the only thing that I loved and that um, was there for me was my cat, Frederick, and he, um, he killed him. And to this day, I still can't fully uh, think about it without breaking down. That's an awful, just, awful situation for any any child to have to grow up in in that kind of environment. What age did you did you move out of your home early? What happened there? I did. I moved out um, shortly before my nineteenth birthday. I had uh, started going to church, and I had just a wonderful group of people in um, a college group that I attended and uh, the people took me in. I kind of couch surfed, but in a way it was just, uh, just some kind people knowing that my situation was intolerable. And um, I worked three jobs and went to school so I can get a place of my own and um, ended up living with roommates and, uh, started a life apart from them but 
it was never apart from them because even though my mother, like I said, we were never really bonded. She wanted to know once I was out of the house, every single thing I was doing, she would show up at the places where I lived. She would call me incessantly. Um, she's, she almost got me fired from a job from just calling and calling repeatedly. And it, it was just so strange that once I was gone, that's when she showed, I guess, some kind of caring, or maybe it was just control in a very, very strange way. She knew, she knew no boundaries. So it sounds like you got yourself into a healthier situation, maybe not an ideal situation, but you distanced yourself from from the trauma that you had experienced. But your your yes. your mom still found a way to interject. Did did there come a point where you just closed off all contact with with her? You know, I never did. I felt like it would be wrong of me to cut her out of my life. I knew that she was a toxic person. I knew that every time we hung up, I felt bad about myself. Um, and I also felt like, like there was no boundaries. Like I didn't have, I wanted my, my autonomy, my, um, my independence from this, this insanity that I grew up with. And, um, when I called, she would call me and I would have to screen the calls to see, you know, what's the latest with my brother and, you know, what's um, just what the call would be about. And so I can prepare myself. I could call her on my terms and be prepared for whatever was coming up. My brother and my mom just seemed to live in a world where, um, they were disconnected from uh, reality in, in many ways. And along the way, well, you knew what, what your brother was capable of. You had seen some of the horrible things he had done. There were people that said that he might be a danger to himself or to to your mom. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and can you tell us a little bit about some of that discussion saying, hey, you need to keep an eye on him. He might be dangerous. So my mother um, and brother were living in uh, Lakewood, California, and I was just a city away in Long Beach when my brother decided that he wanted to move. He wanted to move with my mother to um, a place that's remote, that uh, where there were no relatives. And I felt right away that it was obvious he just wanted to get her away from any friends, family. Um, he wanted to isolate her. So they moved to Casper, Wyoming, which now is more populated. But back in 1993, um, there weren't a ton of people there. During that time, there were signs, um, you know, talking to neighbors after the murder-suicide. There were neighbors that said, yeah, you know, we would hear your brother just screaming obscenities at your mother. I don't know why there were no phone calls, um, but a lot of people came forward and said, you know, there, there were definitely signs. She was not allowed to go certain places. She, um, he didn't drive and he didn't work. So he was fully dependent upon my mother. And, but he was also so abusive and she just went along with whatever, whatever he wanted. Um, he began to really get involved in different cons conspiracy theories. He felt that um the government would is going to confiscate any guns and that um you know the aliens were going to come for him just whatever his mind his 
I don't, I don't even know where his mind was going half the time, but he convinced my mom to buy um, a rifle and then also uh, the handgun that eventually ended both their lives. So it, the buying the guns was a, the f- first step in in a very dangerous crossover to to now having serious weapons that could kill people. Um, right. Besides what he already had done in, in the past, being cruel to animals and stuff, now he had guns. I I should go back. I don't know if I can beeline back to um, when I was 12. Um, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but my brother... Um, with his BB gun, wanted to shoot my dad in the head. When I was 12 and my brother was 16, there was an argument that started in our household. And by that time, my brother hated my father. He brought out his BB gun and held the gun to my dad's head and said that he's going to shoot him. And obviously at that age, that was the only weapon in the house. And I don't know what he thought was going to happen to my dad, but he wanted to shoot him in the head. Um, My mother moved the gun, the gun hit her head and she, it cut her head and she started bleeding everywhere. Somebody saw this through our living room window, called the police and the police and the SWAT team ended up on our street um, calling, come out with your hands up. My mother had blood all over her face. Um, I was 12 years old and I was in a panic. I just cried and cried and um, we had to sit down on the curb and make sure my brother was, you know, my mother wasn't going to press charges, which she did not. Um, so that was, that was also a pivotal, pivotal time in my childhood where I knew that he was more dangerous than I had uh, even anticipated at that age. Yeah. A a, a glaring warning sign. Yeah. Let's um, discuss the day that your brother carried out his, his um, uh, plan. If it was a plan, maybe you can clear that up for us on September 4th, 2014. That was your brother's 48th birthday. Can you walk us through what happened that day? A week after the murder-suicide, I went to my mom's house, um, got her ashes, and met with her neighbors. And I kind of got um, a glimpse of what the day entailed. My brother woke up in a good mood um, normally every birthday. And I remember this even when I was a kid that he hated his birthday. He hated himself. He hated his birthday, and he would give my mother grief, saying, why didn't you just abort me like you aborted another baby? Um, But this morning in particular, he woke up in a good mood. He wanted to go up to Casper Mountain and take pictures of some waterfalls and just some, some nature scenes. He liked to take pictures. And my mother, I don't know if she willingly, I'm not exactly sure what her mindset was other than in talking to the neighbors and also talking to my aunt. Um, She was happy that he was happy and that he wasn't giving her grief. So it was was a little bit of relief for her, for him to be having a good day, which in turn probably was, was a good day for her. Right. So from what I can gather, they left about 11 o'clock in the morning and they drove up Casper Mountain. And as they drove, my brother took pictures along the way. And some of them are so um, random. They're pictures of signs going up Casper Mountain. And there's pictures of um he would take a picture of her. She would take a picture of him. 
And that was also telling as well in that my brother had basically a rule. You never take a picture of my brother. My brother um, was adamant that he never wanted that. Um, But in the uh, newspaper article, there's a picture of my brother um, standing by a waterfall. And it's just curious that he allowed that on that particular day. He had the day planned to the detail to um, just where he had my mom pose on a fence, like a fence and having her wave like she was waving goodbye. This is how my brother operated. He was a master manipulator and he was one of the worst liars one of the best liars because he was, it was always so outrageous. Um, as they drove up Casper mountain, I don't know how many different places they stopped along the way, but they, um, ended up at a campsite and the time that was estimated where, uh, they parked and where the murder suicide took place was about three o'clock, four o'clock. I think he um, caught her off guard. I think she, the way I see it in my mind and the way that the coroner, um, the detectives walked me through it was she parked the car, he brought out the gun, and I think it shocked her. They scuffled as evidenced by my mom's arms, scratches, on him and bruises on her. She was fighting. My brother shot her uh, the shoulder, the left shoulder um, in the struggle and then shot her through the cheek. And then finally the the final shot was through her jaw that went straight to her brain stem. And at that point, she, the coroner had told me that she would have died instantly. He then took the gun, put it in his mouth, and shot himself. And when were their bodies discovered? Their bodies were discovered about 5 o'clock. Um, according to the police report, that I have a lot of... I, there were a lot of police vehicles and um, ambulance, just uh, not a lot happens in Casper, Wyoming. So it sounded like, I believe the police report said that there were 14 um, different either detectives, you know, um, law enforcement and uh, EMTs that showed up. Um, They were obviously deceased at that point and um the window uh was shot out and yeah that's that's about the time that they were discovered this is something that your your brother seemed to have definitely planned in advance because he he left a suicide note can you tell us a little bit about what he said in the note yes so the suicide note was underneath or right at his feet um, he was the passenger. My mom was the driver. Like I said, he didn't drive. Um, the suicide note, and I still have it in the evidence bag. Um, outside the envelope, it just says note. And you open it up. And he, and I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said, my mother and I um, no longer want to live in this cruel world. And throughout the suicide note, he he wanted the reader, he wanted people to believe that this was uh, planned, that my mom wanted him to take her life. And so it was a, um, you know, a, a agreed upon double suicide, for lack of a better term. Once again, like I said, he was a master manipulator. He lied throughout. 
he said that he thought his mom had cancer um, and that she was miserable, um, that she wanted to die. And that couldn't have been further from the case. My mother had just started dating after 23 years, just started dating a man that became the love of her life um, within four months. And my brother hated him. So throughout the letter, my brother said that my mom wanted to be with her, the love of her life, which was way back when was actually my brother's physician when he was going through his medical issues. It was a long time relationship that my mom had had with this doctor. So to hurt everybody that would be reading this letter, including her, um, her boyfriend he just wanted he he wanted to to dig it into everybody you know and he wanted he wanted to manipulate to the very end and i met with a detective and i went that first line where he says my mother and i no longer want to live in this cruel world i looked at the detectives and i said this this can't be right this is a lie and I felt like a child again. I felt like when I was telling on my brother to my mom saying, my brother's beating the animals. I felt like here's, I, I have no voice. Like people are believing him over me. And the detective just, you know, he shook his head and he said, we've interviewed a lot of people and, and, you know, and based on what you've told us, based on what neighbors and and some relatives have told us, we know that this is not the case. And we know that from the wounds and the um, just uh, her fighting back during the murder, that that was incorrect, that she did not want to die. This was a uh, a mess of a situation, uh, tragic and um, right from till the very end, and you were left to sort of deal with the the aftermath. How tough was it for you to sort of pick up the pieces and say, "Okay, all of this happened um, to two of my family members," uh, but that you had already had a, a, a splintered relationship with, did you have mixed feelings or mixed emotions of, about how you should feel? I had so many mixed emotions. My mother, I hadn't seen her in years and she really didn't know my children who were all teenagers at the time. We had seen each other briefly in California. She was attending a wedding she hadn't traveled out of Wyoming in a very, very long time. Um, so we met up with her, um, and she met my teenage children for the first time. And that was three weeks before this took place. I hadn't seen my mom in 14 years. This was by her choice. I was not going to travel. I had four kids. I was not going to travel to Wyoming for my kids to be subjected to being around my brother because he, at that point, um, I considered him a sociopath and I feared him. So my mother and I, we had the opportunity. We were on a family vacation, my husband, my kids and I, and she was there with her boyfriend attending a wedding and I talked to her all of maybe two hours and the whole time she complained about my brother and how he's just going off the deep end. She actually said this, um, that he was having panic attacks. It was such a, a strange meeting of all these years seeing one another and it was just all focused on my brother again. Um, I knew that he had, that they had a gun and I told her, you need to get out of that house. You need to move in with your, with your love, with your boyfriend, um, and get away from him because he's dangerous. 
And I told her brother, my uncle, that as well. And everybody sloughed it off and said, oh, that's just David. To the date, three weeks later, he killed her. And I picked up the pieces on my own. My, my kids were young. They didn't need the burden of knowing too much. Um, my husband was a support. But in the end, I was just there with my mother's body at the funeral home. Um, and I had her, I, I, I had to visit her. I had to visit her body to talk to her and say goodbye one last time. Um, my brother, I didn't, I wasn't going to see his body, have him cremated, have to pay for all of that. I um, contacted a place called Science Care and donated his body for medical research. Um, so they took care of everything. They picked up his body um, from Casper, Wyoming and flew it to Denver, Colorado. And I never heard anything after that. He died alone. My mother had some friends, but in the end, I was the only one there. There was never a funeral. There was never even a, a obituary for either one of them. Yeah, just tragic all the, the way around uh, to have to grow up with, with everything you did and to have all this dysfunction and illness and, and, and who knows if he wasn't evaluated, maybe mental illness going on. Um, just a, a, a horrible situation for you to grow up in that ended in uh, just a really awful tragedy. Where where do you stand now? How are you today looking back and, and having processed this and lived through all this? Where are you now? Well, it's been six years. Um, for the first two years, I went through the motions of taking care of my kids. My kids all have, you know, gone off to college. And during that time, I decided two years into this, I need to, I need to be better. I need to be different than my mother. And I was going to make a difference. Um, I went back to school and I got my associate's degree in human services. I started working with um, homeless and at-risk uh, youth and young adults. I began working with foster children and just kept giving back and giving back. I started working with NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, um, and sharing my story in um, lockdown um, mental facilities. Um, I began working with addicts and, um, it eventually led me to becoming a camp counselor at, um, at a foster camp and four years later, um, actually fostering, um, one of my little campers. It, it sounds like you've taken some of this pain and channeled it into a lot of positive things helping other people and, and giving back to that. Yes, that is my intention. And that's exactly um, what I've wanted to accomplish. And this is not to say that I don't have my own struggles. Doing this interview was actually a very huge step for me um, to rehash some of these things and to bring them up, you know, with especially my childhood and, um, and my cat and, and then thinking that it ended up manifesting into a murder suicide. It's led me, left me with, um, trauma, with PTSD, um, depression, anxiety, and dissociation. Sometimes I can't think of it and sometimes I just can't believe that that actually happened in my family um, it's affected my family my youngest is um, he was 14 at the time he is one of the most um, emotionally intelligent people I've ever met 
and he's my son and I'm very proud of him, but it changed a trajectory in his, in his life where his uh, main goal is to catch the bad guy, as he put it back then. He couldn't believe that his grandma, you know, because he was the one that would talk to my mom on the phone. He couldn't believe that his grandma uh, was killed by the uncle that he had never met. So even though it sounds like my life, you know, is all tied up in this nice bow where, you know, I'm a foster mom and I'm a grandma and I'm a mom of four and um, college graduates, just you look, you look on paper and you think, wow, she has it all together. But I struggle every day with these feelings and thoughts and emotions that run through my head. And I don't think anyone can, can fault you for that after everything you've experienced and the trauma you've gone through. The, but I, you touched on something saying this interview was difficult and uh, I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing what you did because this is an incredibly um, tragic and terrible experience all the way around I can imagine for you. So if there's anyone out there listening, maybe that has gone through some traumatic experiences similar to yours, maybe hearing you talk about it will be some kind of comfort for them and let them know that, hey, I'm not alone. There's other people that have gone through this same kind of thing. I, I think it's kind of important to bring up the fact that people came to me afterwards because this wasn't just a mother-son kind of, you know, codependent relationship. This was domestic violence. This was like a husband and wife. He treated her like he was was married to her. It was it was bizarre and that's you know, there's so many details there as well. But this was like domestic violence where um you see something, your neighbor um, you know, friend, get involved, call, call the authorities, somehow get involved because what's happening behind closed doors, if you're hearing it outside, it's worse behind closed doors. Um, and for child abuse, the child abuse that went on in my household somebody should have gotten involved. And when the police came that night that my brother wanted to kill my dad, somebody should have taken me out of that house, but nobody ever did. So I really want to stress to anybody that's listening to, to speak out and to help. If you hear something, if you see something that is going on, say something. That's the perfect way to end our discussion because I think all grown accustomed to maybe minding our own business a, a little bit too much. <laughs> maybe we need yeah. to get back to where we look out for one another and try to help people in need. Uh, again, Kim, I can't thank you for coming on to discuss this case. It's It's been very enlightening talking with you, and I appreciate you opening up and sharing something so difficult with us. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. To learn more about spotting and dealing with mental illness, check out NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, at nami.org. If you're thinking about self-harm, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. And to learn more about preventing animal cruelty, visit humanesociety.org. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview of a brand new podcast called Judgy and Juryish, co-hosted by my friend Jamie Rice, so be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey, I'm Jamie. You might know me from Murderish, a true crime podcast. Well, I've got a new podcast called Judgy and Juryish, and I'm hosting it with my best friend since junior high. 
That's me, Jesse. Every week on Judgy and Jurious, Jamie and I edition our favorite reality TV shows with Judgy opinions coming in hotter than a Lady Morgan toaster oven. We'll take you inside the drama, and when reality stars fight, best believe we are engaging. Put on your She by Charade joggers, pour a glass of Ramona Pinot Grigio, then search for and subscribe to Judgy and Jurious in your favorite podcast app. And remember, fix your face and stay looking hot because you don't want to end up with a crappy mugshot. Bye. Bye.